to the saints who are in Wesley, worshipping on site and uh, online, and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord be with you. We continue with our sermon series on the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. My sermon is the seventh. It is entitled, The Trouble with Idolatry. If you have missed any of our sermons in this Real Church series, please visit Wesley YouTube channel to catch us and catch up on them. Our scripture text today is taken from the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to the first verse of chapter 11. As it is a relatively long passage with 34 verses, we will not be reading the passage. Instead, let us turn to our Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 together, as I'll be referring to the passage in the sermon. And if you are using the Pew Bible, it can be found on page 172 of the New Testament. One of the most controversial subjects Paul had to deal with in the Corinthian church was about eating meat from animals sacrificed to Greek and Roman gods. The early church in Corinth of the first century had a small number of Jews but a large number of Gentile converts. The latter saw no problem continuing their way of life even after their conversion. This issue caused a division in the church between those who were against the consumption and those who wanted to carry on eating as usual. And so, Paul confronted this problem head-on from chapters 8 to 10, after answering their questions about marriage in chapter 7. As Pastor Lillian reminded us in her sermon last week, the pertinent question for this chapter is, Can Christians eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? And so let me dive right into the answers. According to Paul, in verses 25 to 30, if the meat were bought in the market where its source was unknown, or eaten in the comfort of a private home, it would be permitted, unless someone raises a concern about the action at the dining table. However, in verses 16 to 22, Paul absolutely forbid eating the meat if it were consumed in the context of an idolatrous worship in a pagan temple. And so what does it mean for us? It means the issue that Paul addressed in these chapters was not about food per se, but about the context or circumstances whereby they were consumed. In fact, the deeper issue Paul wanted to nip in the bud was the idolatrous culture that was prevalent and rampant in the Corinthian church. He alluded to his intention when he asked a question of the Christians who still clung to their old practice of participating in the temple meals in chapter 8, verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? to eat food offered to idols. And then Paul moved in for the kill in chapter 10. 
He gave a stern and dramatic warning of God's judgment on the church for those who were guilty of the sin of idolatry. In verse 7, Paul said, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And to reinforce his warning of God's judgment, he referred to three Old Testament stories of Israel in verses 7, 8, and 9, respectively. The first, the golden calf incident at Mount Sinai after their exodus from Egypt. How many of us are familiar with this story? Yes, many of us will be familiar. However, do you know that 3,000 men, women, and children were tragically slain in Israel's worship of the Egyptian bull god, Apis? In the second story, more people died because of the sin of idolatry. 23,000 perished in a single day of the plague at Shittim. This time, the punishment was for participating in pagan practices, including sexual reverie, to placate the mountain god Baal of Peor. For the third story, the number of casualties was not recorded. Perhaps the body count too numerous to be accounted for. It happened during their journey from Mount Hall toward Edom on the way to the Red Sea. And before they set out from Mount Hall, God had granted the Israelite victory over the Canaanites in a, in a battle. However, they became impatient along the way. They accused God and Moses for bringing them to the wilderness to die and grumbled. Can you imagine? Grumbled at having insufficient food and water. This time, God judged them by sending venomous snakes into the camp to bite them and many died. However, when the people pleaded for mercy, God gave them a way out by instructing Moses to hang a bronze snake on a pole. Those who were beaten just had to look at it and were miraculously healed. In verse 11, Paul reminded the Corinthian Christians and asked to pay special attention to these stories. Now, these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You see, these gruesome stories are not just there for fun. right? It is meant to caution us not to make the mistakes the Israelites did, or we might meet a similar tragic end, especially as we are living in the end times. Friends, which of these stories challenge you? How many? One? Two? Mm. Now, for some of us, huh, the first two stories may not mean much because we do not pray to idols at home or participate in rituals in pagan temples. Especially if you come from a Christian family, your closest exposure to idol worship could be the month-long Hungry Ghost Festival which just ended on Thursday. And for the past month, you saw people placing food offerings and uh, burning joysticks and papers by the roadside in the neighbourhood. As this is a common sight in Singapore, it did not really bother you and you barely thought about it. Therefore, you may think that Paul's warning applies only to Christians. Okay, Christ, the, my Christ, the Christian friend next door. 
who bow down to statues, eat food offered to idols, consult temple mediums, feng shui practitioner, or fortune tellers. You know, when we consider the story of the bronze snake, yeah, the third one, we will learn that this is far from the truth. And idolatry is closer than we think. Why did Paul include the third story as a warning against idolatry when no physical idols or pagan practices were involved? In fact, it was God who told Moses to put an image of a bronze snake to save the Israelites. Did God himself encourage idolatry by imbuing life-saving significance in an inanimate figure? Hmm. In verse in Ezekiel 14, verse 3, God said of Israelites' leaders, These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? To the bronze snake, God gave the Israelites this grim reminder. The sin of idolatry is not just committed externally with physical idols, but also internally in our hearts. What if God replicated the idol of the bronze snake for the Israelites to point out their enslavement to idols in their hearts? What if God used the bronze snake to point out to you and I the enslavement of idols in our hearts? You know, for the Israelites, the bodies... For them, they may have left Egypt, but their hearts and minds were firmly entrenched in the age-old unsavory practices of the pagan country. Timothy Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, highlighted a common mixture, a mistake we often make when thinking about the biblical concept of idolatry. Do we think of idols as overly bad things or actions taken? Most of us, I think, would think, think, think about that. Unexpectedly, the good things in life could actually be the covered idols in our hearts. The greater the benefits and satisfaction we receive from the things we cherished, the more we expect them to satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Unawares, our heart starts to enshrine them in the center of our lives. You know, for me, this is really a scary thought. I don't know about you. It's so scary, right? The good things can distract you from God. And so yes, friends, the idols in our life could very well be the good stuff we love, such as our career, material possessions, hobbies, and even family and loved ones. And while we enjoy the good things God gave us, we may unknowingly place such a great value on them that they suffered. God as the one true God in our life. Paul tells us that in Corinthians 8 verse 6. Do you remember that? And consequently, we forget God is the ultimate reason for and through whom we exist and from and through whom all things come. Can I hear an amen to this? Amen. Amen indeed. And so here is a strong warning for all Christians, you and I, listen carefully. If anything you seek in life is more important to you than God himself, 
that pursuit my brother, my sister, that pursuit has become an idol in your heart. What consumes your heart and occupies your mind more than God? What are you seeking that only God can give? The truth of the matter is that we all struggle with idolatries in our hearts, isn't it? Now, how many of us don't struggle with idolatry? After, after what you hear, right, about the warning about idolatry being physical as well as internal. How many of us don't struggle with that? All of us struggle with that, right? Even the great pastor and hymn writer, John Newton, once wrote about his struggle. I quote, If I may speak of my own experience, I find that to keep my eyes simply on Christ as my peace and my life is by far the hardest part of my calling. It seems easier to deny self in a thousand instances of outward conduct than in a ceaseless endeavour to act as a principle of righteousness and power. Unquote. And so those of us who understand, okay, who understand the difference between obeying rules of outward conduct rather than setting your heart on Christ as your peace and your life, and those of us who understand the, the, the difference, friends, the good news is this, you are on the road to freedom from the idols that control us. Amen. With this reminder, let us now receive Paul's second warning to the Corinthian Christians. Our privilege as God's people do not protect us from His judgment when we fall into the sin of idolatry. In verses 1 to 5, Paul alluded to this point by retelling the Exodus story, which most of us are familiar with, I hope. Israel was delivered from Egypt by God, personally leading them in the pillar of cloud and miraculously opening an escape route through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They ate the manna from heaven and drank water that God provided supernaturally. And yet... And yet, these privileges did not protect the Exodus generation from condemnation for the sin of idolatry. You know that? In fact, all, all but two perished in the wilderness without ever seeing the promised land, including the iconic Moses and his priest and brother Aaron. And so friends, similarly for us, huh, Christians today, right, as you have heard, in the beginning, God has given us spiritual privileges as well. The spiritual blessings that was given to us. We have been redeemed from sin and saved from the hell's fire by God. We are identified with Jesus through water baptism and nourished continually by the Holy Spirit, even now, who lives in us. And through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which we know as Holy Communion, right? Which we celebrate once a month. However, right, the scary thought is this, huh? The Israel's tragic stories, through these stories, we are warned that these privileges will not protect us from God's judgment when we blatantly worship idols, either physically or in our hearts. In verse 12, 
Paul admonished the strong Christians amongst us who arrogantly think that the God that God will not judge them for their folly. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take it lest he fall. And in verse 13, Paul assured the weak Christians who are troubled by his warnings and feeling, you know, insecure. And he says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so friends, make no mistakes about these admonitions. Huh? God cannot be blamed if any one of us, strong or weak, fall into sin, especially the sin of idolatry. Why? God never let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. And because He is faithful and gracious, He always provides a way out. Great is thy faithfulness. Yeah, we sang that. And then the question is, why do we yield so easily to temptation then? Are we like the little boy who found temptation ever calling out to him? Standing in the kitchen, the, boy, the boy's mother heard a loud noise of the cookie jar being taken down. She called out to him, Willie, where are you? I'm in the pantry, mom. What are you doing there, son? I am fighting temptation, mom. Son, that is not the place to fight temptation. It's time to start running. <laughs> Similarly, Paul is saying to all of us in verse 14, My beloved, flee from idolatry. This reminder from Paul is simple. In fact, it is one of the ways which God has provided us for us to get out of temptation. And it is literally to, to get out. <laughs> to get out of temptation. And in verses 14 to 22, Paul associated Christians' participation in the temple meals as eating at the table of demons and absolutely forbid it. Yeah, the, the third scenario. Huh? Absolutely forbid it. And the modern equivalent to this could be the huge celebratory dinners usually held outdoors during the Hungry Ghost Month. Besides the live performances, also known as Ke Thai, yeah, one of the popular events is to bid for items on auction in the belief of bringing good luck and blessings to the highest bidder. Another is the free vegetarian meals which temples serve during various religious festivals in Singapore. The reason for Paul's counsel to flee from idolatry for these celebratory meals laid in the understanding of the single importance of the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion in the lives of Christians. And so friends, the Holy Communion, which we celebrate once a month, and its worship setting are the definitive actions that anchor the heart to the life of faith. I want to say this again. The Holy Communion and its worship setting are the definitive actions that anchor, anchor the heart to the life of faith. And during this meal, Christians appropriate the truth that we stand only and by God's grace. Yeah, we stand only and by God's grace and can look with confidence toward the future 
even in the most difficult time, when the end of the ages will come. Therefore, brothers and sisters in Christ, worship at the Lord's Supper is not to be tainted with participation or sharing in temple meals, as that, according to Paul, would be tantamount to sharing the table with demons. Paul then asks two pertinent questions in verse 12. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? In fact, Paul was alluding to Deuteronomy 32 verse 21. To challenge Christians like you and I who dare to take part in pagan practices, and particularly for the Corinthians Christian, dining in the pagan temple. Lest they ended up dead like the Exodus generation in the wilderness. And so friends, are you still with me? If you're with me, can you wave? Thank you. Paul's questions also challenge us with regards to participation in non-Christian funeral rites, especially of our loved ones. This is the real issue for the church today as many members are first-generation believers with elderly parents who are not Christians. For our loved ones who have not received Christ, we pray for their Christian children and relatives who persevere in reaching out to them. But the truth is this, my friend, that many, that many, there are many who remain non-Christian till their death. Do we heed Paul's admonition to flee from idolatry by not participating in non-Christian funeral rites? What do you think? You know, this question may sound harsh or inappropriate, especially if our parents are still alive, isn't it? However, it is a question we have to face together as a church. A question we have to face together as a church, especially in a rapidly aging society like ours. And so a real church examines real issues so that we are clear on the actions to take and are also able to support those who find themselves in this situation. If you, are, if you agree with me, can I hear an amen? You know, as a pastor, I have often met with members who struggle with this issue when I visit them at the wakes of their non-Christian parents or family members. Some stood firm in their conviction by refusing to participate in the rituals and suffered chastisement and even persecutions from family members. Others did only certain parts of the ritual, which they think were cultural, and avoided those that were religious. Some rationalized the religious component of the rituals as cultural and perform it with a clear conscience. Yet others go through all the rituals because of the tremendous pressure from older family members, especially if they are the younger people with no say. If you are not paying for the funeral, you better keep your mouth shut. At times, to maintain harmony in the family, or if the Christian happens to be the only son or the eldest, friends, there's almost no choice 
so to speak. And so there are many reasons and factors involved in an event where grief is raw and rationale is distorted. What does a Christian do in such circumstances? Should I warn my non-Christian siblings and family members in advance that I will have nothing to do with these pagan rituals when the time comes? Or shall I participate in the bare minimum to preserve peace? And so, Pastor, Pastor Raymond, which part of the ritual is religious that I can avoid? And which part is cultural that I can perform with a clear conscience? Pastor Chinam, would God be angry with me and punish me for not fleeing from idolatry? Would I anger my non-Christian siblings and relatives with my actions and be a bad testimony by not cooperating with them? And the next time I invite them to church, they say, go and fly kite. If I comply with the rites, my brother sitting there, when he comes, would I be setting a bad example to him? Or to my relatives who are Christian watching me? Friends, such heavy questions require lots of thinking and thorough research. Let someone who is an expert on this subject offer you some answers. Sign up for the upcoming midweek online teaching session by Reverend Daniel Tong at Chinese, at the, on Chinese custom. Okay? Thursday, 28th September, 8pm. You can sign up now by scanning the QR code on my slide. I tested it, it works. Or download a, week, a copy of the weekly uh, Wesley. Yeah, yeah, thank, you, thank you, brother, you're trying. You're signing up. Yes, do it. Or you can sign up on page 18 of the Wesley Weekly. Tell all your friends about it. You can also come prepared by reading one of Pastor Daniel's book, A Biblical Approach to Chinese Tradition and Beliefs. The last I heard after the first service, wow, the sign-up went up. And so do sign up, because my brother is going to answer the question. <laughs> and so we all pray for him. Huh? <laughs> So, Reverend Daniel, if you are watching this video, uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> but you are the expert. I'm not. Friends, on a more serious note, I have personally gone through all these struggles and more when my non-Christian parents passed away many years ago. The harsh reality is that I am still living out the hurts and consequences of my decision to obey God. I come from a very staunch Taoist family. I am the youngest in the family with six brothers and three sisters. In her heyday, my mother was quite a popular and well-known Chinese medium. Living in our small three-room flat, I literally slept beside an altar with the many idols my mother kept in the bedroom. Our flat was used as her temple and devotees came daily to worship at the many idols in our home. As a teenager, I was exposed to the world of Chinese mediums and the deities of the Pantheon. You ask me, I can name it. 
Yeah, I can name most of the deities in, on the Pantheon. And many of my mother's friends were mediums too. They were like family to me. My older brothers and I helped my mother in her temple business. Over the years, we witnessed how the gods she served gave her the power to heal the sick, cast out evil spirits, remove needles from persons under curses, and even to give out winning 4D numbers that make her devotees very rich, very happy, and loyal to her. When I became a Christian at 25, my mom was devastated and utterly disappointed with me for betraying her and her gods to follow a foreign god by the name of Jesus. Friends, do you know Jesus? That was the foreign god that my mother thought I followed. And what was even worse (laughs) was that I married a Christian and went to church every Sunday. Although I had been a Christian for about 10 years by the time my mother passed away, I was spiritually young as I did not take the faith seriously. Yes, I did not take the faith seriously. Not aware of the spiritual implication of the Taoist funeral rites, I performed all the rites to keep peace with my older siblings as I was both the youngest and the favorite child. My wife refused to participate, but she took care of the guests at the wake. My my action pleased my family, especially the brother who was closest to me at that time. One of my siblings even commended me for being a good Christian. However, my wife was unhappy with my actions. After my mom's passing, it was a spiritual watershed for me. Suddenly, I was on fire for God. And I was convicted to go for baptism the following year. And by God's grace and mercy, God opened the way, like the Red Sea, for the Israelites. For my two daughters, then 10 and 6, to be baptized together with me right here in this Wesley century. A few years later, when my dad passed away, I had become more spiritually matured. And God spoke to me about the funeral rites through a particular verse in Deuteronomy 5 verse 9. That verse was for me, okay? At that moment when I was struggling, God gave me that verse and He said to me, Jinam, you shall not bow down to idols or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so fully convicted by the Spirit and God's Word, both my family and I refused We refused to participate in the funeral rites and only help out in the wake. You know, none of my brothers said anything. Oh, I thought, hang on. I got away with it. But no, my friend, the drama started on the final day of the funeral. After the last round of the Taoist rites, one of my brothers dragged me to the altar and demanded that I kneel before my father's photo to apologize. Unfortunately, he failed. But fortunately for me, I was stubborn. I was stubborn for God. He couldn't get me to comply. So, the family continued with the ritual so that the cottage would leave on time for the crematorium. Drama over. 
No, my friend. As soon as we returned to the HDB wake site after the funeral service, the brother who dragged me to the altar earlier wanted to beat me up. Unfortunately, an older brother intervened so that I could escape. Friends, I literally brought my wife and children, escaped to the car and drove away. And so even as I share my story, I can recall the pain and sorrow of the incident and how sorry I felt for my family, especially my young children who were traumatized by the consequences of my decision. And of course, I want to stand here to tell you that it is through God's grace and mercy that He, you know, they have seen us through this difficult experience over the year. And truly, truly, friends, you know, we are all struggling together when it comes to to this issue. And we have to struggle together with our members as a church. Yeah? And truly, truly we continue to call on God for His grace and mercy in all the difficult decisions that we have to make in our journey of discipleship. Especially when they contradict God's instructions to us through Scripture. Amen? And so let me end. Let me end with four verses taken from the remaining 12 of our scripture texts for today. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And so let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that, may, that they may be saved. Amen? Amen. And Paul used these verses to provide answers for the scenarios that I highlighted at the start of my sermon regarding eating meat sacrificed to idols. Basically, Paul cautioned against taking any action that may stumble weaker Christians, whether it was in food or daily living. And so the principles embedded in these verses can also help us navigate the difficult decisions and obstacles we encounter in our work with God and in our relationships with everyone. Warren Wisby, a pastor and Bible commentator, turned, he turned these verses into practical questions which I have adapted for us to reflect and applied. All things are lawful, my friends. Will they build up or tear down? Will they benefit me or my neighbor? Will they please me or glorify Christ? Will they help to win the loss for Christ or turn them away? And so what issues are you struggling right now, brothers and sisters? I mean, I suggest, you know, as you ponder the sermon for this morning, as you ponder your difficult situation, may I suggest that you ask this question. And uh, I want to suggest one contemporary question we can test. Uh, we've got to learn how to apply. Uh, let me show you how to apply. Uh, one contemporary question of life we can test against the above question. Can I have the questions, please? Yeah, can I have the questions? 
A question? Yes. Now, this contemporary question is this. Huh? Can a Christian drink alcohol when dining with a Methodist pastor? Can or cannot? Can or cannot? Okay, don't be too fast. Huh? Go, to, go to this question. All things are lawful, but will drinking alcohol during a meal with a Methodist pastor built up or tear down? Will it benefit me or my neighbor or the pastor? Will it please me or glorify God? Will it help to win the loss for Christ or turn them away? And so friends, essentially, these four principles make up the call for all Christians, you and I, strong and weak, to come together in love, to build one another up so that more and more and more people may be ushered into God's kingdom before the second coming of Christ. May Jesus Christ be glorified in and through what we do in His mighty name, now and forevermore. And the people of God say, Amen.